this is the, the Sunday morning before Christmas. And, and this morning, we're gonna look at a, a text of scripture um, that is not considered a, a classic Christmas text, but, but really it should be. Uh, Christmas is, is more than carols and, and presents and decorations. And, um, we can enjoy so much of Christmas. You know what we did this morning, you know, I mean, uh, of the work that went in from the choir. And I just, uh, you know, there's so many people to mention, but just the sacrifice for so many to, to be a part of this was fantastic that we can sing these songs and, and, and where we get these songs, where the hymn writers get these songs wasn't just out there. They came to the word. And this text this morning of First John that we're gonna look at is, is all about Christ, about what, what God has done to, to come low. And we sing it, and we, we, we sung it, and we're gonna do it through the Christmas season. We, we talk about this, uh, of God coming low. Hark the herald angels sing, right? Charles Wesley, if you live in America, you know the song. Christ by heaven's highest heaven adored, right? We, and the veiled in flesh, the Godhead see, hail the incarnate deity. Right there for us, the incarnation. In fact, I was in a store this week, and it was playing over the, the speakers as I walked through. And, and I wondered, how many people understood what that meant? Hail the incarnate deity. That word in, incarnation is so important for your life. Did you know that? Incarnation, it's, it's a tremendous effect for your life. And so there's many places to go in the Christmas season in, in the Bible. And I, and I want to go to 1 John. So you haven't already turned with me to 1 John. And I want to stick there in just the first four verses of 1 John chapter 1. And this passage proclaims something. It teaches us something about Christmas. And so we're going to look deeply. And there, there are two things that, that I want to see in the text. And if you came in, you should receive the bulletin and, and a sheet there with the notes. And there's, there's two points to it. The truth of Christmas and the result of understanding that truth. The result of Christmas. And, and how this holiday makes a difference in our lives. And so I'm, I'm going to read the text this morning. And, and, and if you're new, we have Bibles that are there in, in, the, in the seats and and we say this not to make you feel bad. We, we want to make sure you see the Bible when you have it in your lap. So it's on page 959. We tell you that so, so you're not worried as you look for it if you're not sure where it's at. Page 959. And, and we're going to look at 1 John, just the first four verses of chapter 1. And, and if you're unfamiliar looking at the Bible, the big number is the chapter and the little numbers are the verses. So 1 John chapter 1, verse 1. That which was from the beginning which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we looked upon and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life. The life was made manifest and we have seen it and testified and proclaimed to you the eternal life, which was with the Father, was made manifest to us. That which we have seen and heard, we proclaim also to you so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. And we are writing these things so that our joy may be complete. This is God's word, and I pray it be a blessing to you as we look at it. We're going to begin with prayer, and I ask that you would pray for me, and, and I'll pray for you as we begin this morning. Father, we thank you that we have, been, have the opportunity to gather together as the body of Christ. And, and I know there's people that are here that are visiting from other churches with family this morning. We're thankful that they're here. And we ask, God, that you would be with your people, that they would see and hear and understand your word, that they would know that the truth 
of Christmas. And enjoy even all the other stuff, but really that they won't lose sight of the truth of Christmas, the incarnation of, of Jesus coming low, and those results that come from understanding it, of fellowship with you, and joy that no one can take away. Father, may we understand your word this morning. May we apply it to our life as we leave. For we ask it all in Jesus' name, amen. So first, the truth of Christmas. To understand Christmas, you need to understand that we're talking about doctrine. This is doctrine. And we also need to understand that the term doctrine almost always in our world today has a negative connotation. Our world thinks of doctrine negatively. But doctrine is unavoidable. You may be here this morning and think that doctrine is boring or it's unessential or archaic. And you may say, believe what you want, but don't push it on other people. Don't push your beliefs on me. I'm free to decide what I want. In fact, everyone needs to decide for themselves and, and live how they want. But what you're doing is essentially pushing your doctrine on other people. See, doctrine is a set of beliefs. It's, it's something that you commit your life to live on. You're committing yourself to belief. In fact, you are betting your life on that doctrine. You all have doctrine. If someone says all that matters to God is that we're good people, we don't hurt people, we don't kill people, we don't steal, we're good, and that's how we should leave, live. And, and, and friends, you need to understand that's doctrine. That's a set of beliefs on how you should live. And to be clear, that is the doctrine of justification by works. That is a doctrine that you have bet your life on. That you would live a certain way to prove your worth. If that's how you think and how you live, then that's your doctrine for life. And it will turn out badly. Everyone has faith, beliefs about God, about eternity, about human nature, and about moral truth. And you bet your life on it. It's how you live. And you need to know this morning, there's, there's no way, absolutely no way to avoid doctrine in your life. You have doctrine. We all have doctrine. The question is, where do you get your doctrine? If we all live by doctrine, by a, a set of beliefs, where do we get those beliefs? Well, I hope there's no secret here. I, I, I want to get our doctrine from the word of God. And that's what I'm going to preach this morning. I want to see in scripture how we should live our life, the doctrine of Christmas. And it's right here in 1 John 1. That which we... That's what was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we've seen with our eyes, which we looked upon and it touched. This is doctrine. The, the invisible becomes visible. The mighty comes low, the eternal one. God became human. He came low. This is the doctrine of the incarnation. And this is huge for your life. Now, before we look too deeply at the text, I recognize that we're, we hesitate in life to talk about doctrine. I mean, we do it at church, because it's the safe place to talk about doctrine. At least it is here. I don't know if it's in other churches. But it's difficult to talk about doctrine in the workplace, in the neighborhood, or around the family dinner table at Christmas. And why is it difficult? Why do we hesitate? Because it distinguishes us from others. See, Christianity following the scriptures puts us at odds with other religions. And every other religion, the founder, the, the sage says, here's the way for you to have and find eternal life. You need to do this, and you need to do that, and you need to do it this way and that way, and then you can connect to the, the infinite one. You, you do these things first, and then you can be connected to the one. 
But that's not what the Bible says. Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And Christianity in general, and Christmas specific, doesn't say Jesus was a great prophet pointing the way to God to, to show you how you can save yourself. No, Jesus Christ, according to Christmas, is God coming down to save us. To do for us what we are unable to do for ourselves. And if you don't believe this, if this isn't your understanding of eternal life, then you will live your life with fear and insecurity because you will feel like you have never done enough. And you know you haven't done enough and you will never do enough and you will continue to look for ways to do more and more, more ways to try to cover yourself. And you will live a devastated life, an insecure and afraid and anxious life because you're proud, thinking that you have to do in order to have life. And all of that is the doctrine of justification by works, trying to justify your existence. And friends, that doesn't lead you to God. It leads you away from him. You need the truth of Christ, who's already done what was needed for your life. You need to look at Christ. You need the doctrine of Christmas, the doctrine of incarnation. So let's look at that here and allow it to sink deep into our hearts. About, so we look at the truth of Christmas. First, the first truth I want to mention is Jesus is eternal. He says that which was from the beginning. What is it like in eternity? Have you ever thought about that at all? What's there? Have you ever paused your life, your busyness, your chaos enough to think deeply about eternity? The human imagination is fumbled and guessed, trying so desperately to peer into the darkness of eternity. But we, we don't know all. Now, have you ever thought deeply uh, what it was before God made all of this? Have you ever thought about that? What it, was, what it was before God made earth and everything? I remember as a kid sitting in my bedroom window and looking outside and trying to imagine what it would have been like. What was it like at the beginning? And there's been those that have pondered that question, they come away with the question, if, if someone made all of this out of nothing, who is it? And how do we know who, who this is? And the answer is right here, Jesus. John writes, the same author of 1 John, the gospel of John, in his gospel writes, in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. Before all other things, before anything else existed, there was God, and there was his word who was God And in that little sentence, a revolution has happened in our minds. In the Old Testament, the, the word appears in Genesis 1 as God speaks creation into being. And the word is how God expresses himself, the word of life. The word also came to the prophets as seen in Isaiah and was sent to heal and rescue, as we read in the Psalms, and made known the mind of the Lord in Amos. That which was from the beginning, this is Jesus, the word of God, the one who belongs in the deepest closeness with God. And the one who displays the innermost reality of who God is. Hebrews says he is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being. For he himself is God. He is God's amen, the faithful and true witness, the ruler of God's creation, as Revelation says. And Jesus was before the beginning of this world. He was in the beginning of everything. And he's from the beginning and he will be after everything. In John 8, Jesus said, truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. Scripture declares the word of life to be co-eternal, co-existent, co-substantial with the Father. And we don't come to this understanding all on our own. We come to it from the word of God. If we don't, but do not go to the word to know God, then all of our thoughts about God, however 
respectful and worshipful and philosophically satisfying will be nothing but idolatry. We go to the word. It continues, it says, Jesus was with the father. If Jesus is the son, and he is, being a son means that he has a father. The God that Jesus reveals in the gospels is first a father. He says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the father except through me. And God has revealed himself to be not, not first and foremost a creator or a ruler, but a father. He's eternal in what he has been doing before creation. What was he doing before creation? Have you ever asked that question? Was he bored? Was he sitting around just planning the future? John says in 1724, Father, I desire that they also, whom you have given to me, may be with me where I am to see my glory that you have given me. And then get this, this is what he says. Because you loved me before the foundation of the world. Before God ever created anything, before he ever ruled the world, before he brought man and woman and the flood and Israel and the prophets, before all of that, this God was a father loving his son. This is revolutionary to understanding of who God is. This is the most foundational thing to understand about God. It's not some abstract quality, but the fact that he is father. That's who he is. And the Bible repeatedly makes mention of this. In Exodus, the Lord calls Israel my firstborn son, and he carries his people as a father carries his son, and he, he disciplines his people as a man disciplines his son, and he calls to them as a father has compassion on his children. So the Lord has compassion on those who fear him. And Jesus repeatedly refers, refers to God as the father and directs prayer to our father. And he tells his disciples that he will return to my father and your father. And Paul and Peter refer to God, the father of our Lord Jesus Christ. And Paul writes of one God, the father. And Hebrews counsels us that God is treating us as sons. There's a reason why I read all those. Do you know, do you see it, friends? God is father. And he was father long before he created you and me. God's ways are beautifully fatherly ways. It's not that God does this father gig all day and then kicks back in the evenings just as plain old God. No, he is father through and through. All the way down. All that he does is his father. It's who he is. He, he creates as a father. He rules as a father. He disciplines as a father. He supplies as a father. He loves as a father. He comforts as a father. And when it says God the father, it means something. It's not just a name. A father is a person who gives life, who protects, who who loves to give. And, and we know this, don't we, parents that are sitting here? We get a small, tiny glimpse of this, especially at Christmas, to give gifts to our children. And what a joy it is to give. Friends, this is our Father. And this, this thought should be like a stick of dynamite in the thoughts about God. For if before all things... God was eternally father, then this God is an inherently 
outgoing and life-giving and patient and loving and caring father. He did not give life for the first time when he decided to create. No, from eternity, he has been life-giving. And this is unpacked even more further in, in 1 John chapter 4, verses 7 and 8. It says, Beloved, let us love one another, for the love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love. Have you ever known someone so magnetically kind and gracious, so warm and generous of spirit that just a little time spent with them affects how you think and how you feel and how you behave? Someone whose very presence makes you feel better, even just for a little while when you're with them. I've known people like that, Christians. And, and the Bible says, according to 1 John 4, that you cannot simply know God and experience him without becoming like him in some small ways. And the more time we spend with God and his word, the more we become like him. God is love. He's referring to the Father here. And how, how did the Father show his love? 1 John 4, 9. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. To be the father then means to, to love, to, to give life, to beget the son. Before anything else, from all eternity, our God was loving, giving life, and delighting in the son. And the father is never without the son. But like a lamp, it is the very nature of the father to shine out his son. And likewise, it's the very nature of the son to be the one who shines out from his father. Jesus showed this, this in the Gospels. He shows us the love of the Father and his display for the love of the church. And in the Gospel of John 15, 9, as the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. And this is the very goodness of the Gospel. This means that Christ loves the church first and foremost. His love is not a response given only when the church loves him. His love comes first. And we only love him because he first loved us. This is displayed in our lives in an earthly way in the marriages that God gives us. Preferably one marriage per person. Sorry, did you catch that? I said marriages, I want to clarify. And the marriage that God gives us, husbands being the head of their wives, means first and foremost, loving their bride as Christ. The head loves his bride, the church. He is the lover. She is the beloved. Like the church then, wives are not left to earn the love of their husbands. They enjoy love as something lavished on them freely, unconditionally, and fully. For eternity, the father so loves the son that he stirs the son's eternal love in response. And Christ so loves the church that he stirs our love in response. And the husband so loves his wife that he stirs her love for him back. And we see God's love for the son and the son's love for his bride so clearly at Christmas. God is loving and a sharing God, a God who loves to include. His love is not for keeping, but for spending and for spreading. And in Christmas, so clearly, we see this as Jesus comes down to us. John says in 1 John, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we've looked upon and have touched with our hands, a life was made manifest and we have seen it, was made manifest to us, that which we have seen and heard. This is the doctrine of Christmas. The incarnation is God sending his son down to us 
Christmas means God has gone infinite lengths to come near to you for you to have a personal relationship with him so that you can know God personally. See, God is not interested in just being known about or a concept to be believed in. He's not a powerful force that you bow to in some way. He comes to us. The infinite becomes infant to live among us and to bring us to God. You recognize that, friends, this Christmas season? God went to infinite lengths to get near you, to get close to you, so that you could know him personally. He went to infinite lengths. He left his glory behind. He left the all-surrounding, eternally fulfilling love of the Trinity to come low and to humiliate himself to live in our world, to come to you and to me, and to die for us. This closeness is incredible for us to understand at Christmas. If, if the Son himself had never been close to the Father for all eternity, how could he bring us close to God? I mean, the Trinity, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are, are of incredible importance at Christmas. If God was all by himself, salvation would look entirely different. He might allow us to live under his rule and protection, but an infinite distance uh, approached perhaps through some intermediaries. He might even offer forgiveness, but he would never offer closeness. But this God comes to us himself. The father rejoicing to share his love for his son with us, sending him to, to us that in him we might be brought back into the father's care, thereby the spirit to call him Abba, Father. Jesus came down low to us. And John is emphatic here in these verses. This is his testimony. These are the words John uses, and it should strengthen our faith in the gospel. This is a deposition here of John. This isn't something to throw away. This is his testimony here. He knows Jesus. He has seen Jesus, and not him alone. Others have seen him. Look at what John says. This is the same man, the same one that wrote the gospels, is writing in 1 John. He says, we have, we have, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon and touched with our hands. Those accounts that we read in the gospels of Jesus walking on water, turning water into wine, feeding thousands with fish and a few bread, all those things, they're not legends. They're not things that are made up. They're not wonderful spiritual parables. He says, we saw it. We saw him do this. We heard him teach. We heard him pray to the Father. We interacted with him. We embraced him. We touched him. We were there. You see, some people in, in our world just want the glory in the story that was shared. Wasn't that a nice story? That was a nice story. Wasn't that a nice thing that Jesus did there? He fed 5,000 people. He's so caring to feed them. What a great story. And John is saying, it's true. I was there. I ate the meal. It was really good fish. I heard Jesus pray. I helped him serve the people. I was there. And the doctrine of Christmas is that Jesus really did come to earth. He really did live with people. He really did heal them and teach them and raise a few from the dead. This really happened. The stories in the Bible are true. 
I remember having a professor in my freshman year in university and in history class and her sharing right before winter break about the story of Christmas. I don't know how she got there. And, and she shared how, how she felt it was a lovely story that she would retell to her kids at Christmas, but she would tell them it's just a story. It's just a legend. And I remember thinking as an immature freshman, man, I want to punch her in the throat. <laughs> Not as a pastor. I wasn't a pastor then. This is what many in the Northwest believe too. Have you talked to your neighbors, your coworkers? They think it's cute. The story, the story of gospel, the stories of Jesus coming to earth. It's, it's a cute story. It's too far-fetched for them. They think it's a legend. They think it's a, a parable or something. But they don't believe it's true. And here in 1 John, he's pressing them. He's telling them, this is true. This really happened. And perhaps today you're visiting church for the first time. These verses are telling you something here this morning. They're either lies that you're reading in the Bible or they're eyewitness accounts, but they can't be legends. You see, in legends, you don't put in as many details as they do throughout the Gospels. And in legends, you don't use real people who are still alive when you write it. That's a big no-no. Why? Because if it's not true, they'll come say that's not true. Friends, there are eyewitness after eyewitness accounts in the New Testament pointing to the legitimacy of Jesus Christ. Witnesses coming forward. And the readers of the New Testament knew that these were either lies or actual truthful eyewitness accounts, but they could never be legends. You don't have that option. Jesus is either a liar, a lunatic, or Lord. But he can never be a legend. And the doctrine of Christmas is that Jesus Christ really lived. He really died. The gospel is not that Jesus Christ comes to earth and tells us how to live, and then we go live a good life and all of them in our own strength. And then God, and Jesus takes that record to God and says, look, he's good. And then God owes you a blessing. That's not the gospel. The gospel is Jesus Christ came to earth and lived the life that we should have lived. And he died the death that we should have died. So that when we believe and trust in him, we're accepted and we live a gratefully joyful life unto him. Not based on anything we do, but fully because of what Jesus did. The doctrine of Christmas is that really did come. Jesus really did come as a baby to live and die for us. And if he really didn't come, then the story of Christmas is one, one more paradigm to crush you. If Jesus really didn't come, I wouldn't want to be anywhere near this story. If Jesus really didn't come, this story isn't really true, then, then Christmas should be discouraging. But friends, the story is true. And the first two verses are true. John really did see him. And not him only. Others really did hear him and interact with him. This is real. And this is the truth of Christmas, that God would send his son low. That leads us to the second half this morning, the result. Christmas comes at a high cost. The love of God towards the son spilling over in him, coming down to earth to humiliate himself, to save us. It's a high cost. These are no small things, friends. And with the message of Christmas right before us, we have in this passage the amazing results of Christ being born to die for us. 
That's what Christmas is. The day we celebrate Jesus being born to die. In the last few verses, verses three and four, we see these results. The benefits that come to us as Christians that we can have fellowship with God the Father and with his son and with one another and we can have joy. First, fellowship. He says that which we have seen and heard, we proclaim also to you so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with his son, Jesus Christ. This glorious life of Jesus entered into our world, not only for John to experience it, but that it would allow others to experience fellowship with God. And this fellowship is spread to others as well, especially in the church. The we in verse three refers to John and the apostles. They desire for, for us to have fellowship with them, but not only them, he says, but with God the Father and with the Son, Jesus. And the main goal of gospel preaching each week is that men and women be brought into fellowship with God and with his son and with one another. And consider this, friends. The reason the apostles preached the message of Jesus Christ was not for individual conversion alone. Now, the apostles did not preach so that there would simply be a new me, but so that we would be a new we. It's, they didn't preach simply for a new you, but for a new us. A collection of of redeemed people bought from sin and the judgment of God to be made a new royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God. And have you looked around lately at the church to see what God has done? Bringing people together from every tribe, every tongue, every race. And who could do this but God? Really, who could do it? Some of you don't regularly attend church. Some of you come on special services and maybe you have a history with the church. Perhaps you've been hurt or burned before by the church. But the right response to the church, the right response to the church of worship, to the, to the people of God, is not to put down. It's not to criticize and to notice all of the, the flaws the right response to the church by a heart that is set on worshiping God is to say, oh my God, look at the church. Oh, how beautiful, how staggering that God would draw us together to be the church. How beautiful. And my, this is my God. This is my covenant God. This is my father. This is the one who has saved me. The one who's, who gave his son for me. This is my God. He's my God. And we are his people. We are the church. Look at the church. That God has sent his son so we can have fellowship with one another. And we'd have no fellowship outside of this probably. So that we would be the church. And not just with one another, but to have fellowship with the Father and the Son. And to have fellowship with the Father and the Son is to be loved by the Father and to have Jesus Christ, the Word of God, the eternal life living, us, living in us. That's why Paul cries out in Galatians 2.20, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. See, this, this is what happens when we have fellowship with God and with the Son and with the Holy Spirit. We have fellowship with the church. 
And then we have joy. He doesn't end there. He says we have joy. See, the goal of fellowship is joy. He says, and we are writing these things so that our joy may be complete. Have you noticed that you live in a joyless world? You know, this is the thing you hear about at Christmas time from the world. Even the songs that they grew up singing, the songs they look forward to, there's, there's this desire to have hope. And really this world just wants some joy. You know, they've lived the last 11 months joyless, fearful, broken, beat up. And they just want joy. And John says the result of Christmas, the result of the incarnation of Jesus coming as a baby to earth is fellowship and then joy. Not just fleeting happiness, but joy. Christian joy, biblical joy, a good feeling mentally and physically produced only by the Holy Spirit as he causes us to see the beauty of Jesus Christ in the word and in the world. That's joy. True joy only comes from God. Christian joy is better than the world's joy. And John is writing that they, have, that they would have fellowship with one another. And because of that fellowship with God the Father and with, with, with each other, they can complete joy. They have complete and full joy. See, John has their joy in view. He's a pastor for his people. And having joy was on the lips of Jesus a few times in the Gospels, right? John 15, 11, these things I've spoken to you that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. And later in chapter 16, John 16, 24, until now you have asked nothing in my name. Ask and you will receive that your joy may be full. God delights in bringing us joy, brothers and sisters. And the Bible is filled with admonitions to have joy, to, to enjoy. The Westminster Shorter Catechism says the chief end of man is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. Because of Christmas, we can enjoy salvation. Habakkuk 3.18 says, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. Because of Christmas, we can enjoy the scriptures. Jeremiah 15.16 says, your words were found and I ate them. I consumed them. He says, your words became to me as joy and delight in my heart. And because of Christmas, we can enjoy the spirit. Galatians 5.22, but the fruit of the spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness. And because of Christmas, because of God sending his son low, we can have joy in the midst of trouble and suffering. And I know some of you are in the midst of that. Some of you in this week even, fighting to have joy. James says, count it all joy. My brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the test of your faith produces steadfastness. That joy only comes through God. See, at Christmas, God took on flesh and entered the world to be horribly abused and slaughtered and pierced and hung on a tree and buried and then raised from the death, all for the sinner's joy. Christ endured the agony of the cross for the joy set before him, for his joy in redeeming us, for our joy in knowing him. This is what 
the end of the gospel brings. Joy for the sinner who now looks at his savior face to face, redeemed. This is why fellowship cannot be fundamentally reduced to activities in the church, to a set of programs or a set of do's and don'ts. In essence, through fellowship, the Lord's life pushes us and propels us and draws us to joy, to to great joy, built through real relationships, not just structure. And John wants his readers to experience this type of joy, a joy that can even be there in the midst of horrific circumstances and horrible life situations, a joy that can revel in Jesus Christ and what he did for them on the cross. And this joy is not just some uh, light, happy, clappy, back-slappy silliness. This isn't trivial. This isn't superficial. This is blood-bought joy. You can't generate this type of joy. Only God can give you this joy. This is what the world wants. And John says the only way to receive this is through fellowship and ultimately through the cross. And this is real joy, sustaining joy, lasting, enduring joy. This is the joy that the world wants at Christmas. And they have no way of finding it only through Jesus Christ. This is why we're here at Edgewood Bible Church. This is why we open the doors each week to proclaim Christ, to proclaim his glorious gospel so that others may experience this joy and fellowship with believers. Christmas is all about Christ. The word became flesh and lived among us. The word did not become a religious system. The word didn't become a theological checklist. The word didn't become a political movement. The word didn't become an experience. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. I'm gonna pray and then we're gonna ask you to sing with us about this joy that we experience as, as believers and that we desire for the world to experience also through our lives and ministry. Would you join me in prayer? Father, we thank you for this morning. We thank you that we could gather together as the body of Christ and that we could enjoy you in the midst and remember and remind ourselves again of what Christmas is all about. That the word became flesh and lived among us. That you out of your overflowing love sent Jesus to come and to live with us and to live for us and to die for us. God, I pray for those that are here this morning that have never experienced salvation. Maybe they've heard about you. Maybe they've heard about Jesus. But they're not saved. They haven't turned from their life of following themselves and turned to you. And God, I ask that you would save them. That you would give them faith to believe. That you would regenerate them. That make them new. And we'll give you all the glory for what you do. And God, I pray as we leave this place today and, and celebrate and spend time with family this afternoon and come back, I pray this next week would give us opportunities to 
to live out this joy in the life that we live with our family and with our friends. Help us to have boldness to just read your word with those that desperately need to hear it, who desperately need joy. May they understand that. Give us encouragement along the way. We thank you and praise you that we could gather together. Now, as we leave this place in song, may you be honored and glorified in it. We ask it all in Jesus' name, amen.